listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Today I'd like to talk about Sunday dazzling clothes and alleged Bible contradictions. Sunday dazzling clothes and alleged Bible contradictions, and it's going to be brought to us courtesy of the book that allegedly has these Bible contradictions, the Bible, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Jesus has been crucified, put into the tomb, and this is what's transpiring right after that. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, the words of Jesus. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. In other words, a a fairy tale. Fictitious. They couldn't be real. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Isn't it beautiful how the Lord is doing a work now in the life of Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times? Complete denial, not once, not twice, but three times. And it's Peter who has this tremendous opportunity as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. He rose and ran to the tomb, stooping in and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. You know what else is interesting and significant and countercultural? That Jesus' resurrection is discovered by women at a day and a time where women didn't have that elevated place in terms of being the most credible of credible witnesses. So if the Bible was a book that was an attempt by writers to sanitize things, to conspire, to present things in a way that would be most believable as opposed to be most believable just through the byproduct of telling the truth, you would not have things go down the way they go down here. You'd have maybe somebody else who's considered more credible, more respected, more honorable. Now, just so we understand, too, in Christianity, the place and the role of women, unlike other world religions, is actually elevated. Women are honored in Christianity in ways that other world religions do not honor the women. So it's important for us to understand that truth is still true today. Of course, there have been abuses Of course there have been abuses. You'll find abuses 
anywhere and everywhere if you're willing to look for them. So historically there have been abuses, but the overwhelming propensity of evidence, if you look at history, makes it absolutely clear. Christianity in particular took the role of women and elevated it higher than it had been in that particular day. And the gospel writer here, in fact, all the gospel writers with their role of women in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they do something counterintuitive, countercultural, to help us understand that the Bible is not a sanitized book of compiled stories to try to make us believe things that didn't happen. It's simply telling the truth the way things actually happened. Make sense? So here's something that's tremendously interesting is in verse seven. Let's begin with verse six. He is not here, all right? Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they say, he's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. What's interesting about that verse, verse seven, is that now we have the angels using the phrase and the title about Jesus that was his, Jesus' favorite phrase. Now the angels have followed suit and they are actually giving testimony. It gives me goosebumps to even say it. I feel them right now up and down my back. Even the angels now are referring to Jesus as the Son of Man. Look with me at Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13. This is where the Son of Man, the phrase comes from, Jesus' most popular phrase that he used in reference to himself. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Read the book of Revelation, and you understand that Jesus is being served and honored and worshiped by all peoples of all nations and all languages. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it's huge here that the angels are now using the same title that Jesus repeatedly used again and again in reference to himself. Now look with me at 1 Thessalonians, at 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. I want you to understand the role of the Son of Man and the place of the clouds. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning Christians who die, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, when somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ dies, if you're a Christian, you will grieve. You just don't grieve in despair. You grieve differently. You grieve because you miss that person. You'll no longer get time with them at least for a little time until you're eventually reunited. But you don't grieve in the same way that people in the world grieve who have no hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. There it is. With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And if we were to read Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, Revelation 14, 14, you would see again the role of Jesus in the clouds, and you're able to connect the dots and understand that the reason why Jesus will return in the clouds is because Jesus was and is the Son of Man referred to in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that Jesus is the one whom all the people on the face of the earth will one day worship and adore in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is that one. Hallelujah. And so now it's significant that the angels are providing testimony that they agree with what Jesus said about himself. They agree about the identity of Jesus. And moreover, look at verse 6, Luke 24, verse 6. He's not here but has risen. Remember, remember how he told you. Remember what he said while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Luke 9.22, Luke 18. Look with me at Luke 9, first of all. Look with me at Luke chapter 9. This is also found, you'll also find examples of this in the other gospel accounts. But here, let's look at Luke chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. And he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer. See, there he is, referring to himself again as the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is what the reference is that the angels are referring to. And then when we look at Luke chapter 18, we see Jesus do it again. I'm just giving you a sampling. This is done repeatedly in other parts of Luke's gospel and the other gospels. In Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31, Jesus said this. Here's what the writer says. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before the ascension, and things go down exactly the way Jesus was predicting they would go down. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So the angels in Luke 24 are saying, don't you remember, don't you understand that when Jesus makes a promise, Jesus keeps the promise? In the same way that we can look back and have confidence in the things that Jesus promised would be fulfilled 
either during his lifetime or immediately after his lifetime that now we look back at and their history for us. We can hold on dearly to those things that are not yet history for us, but in terms of God, from his perspective, they're already history. They're done. Because when God makes a promise, God keeps his promise. So with the same certainty that we can look back and have confidence in the fact that Jesus predicted his suffering, his rejection, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, in the same way that we look back with confidence at those things, we can look ahead with confidence to those things that are not yet fulfilled, but are yet to be fulfilled because the scriptures promised them and because Jesus said that they would happen. Namely, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as one of many examples that we will be reunited with Jesus Christ, literally, not allegorically, not metaphorically, Jesus will return. We who believe in Jesus will be reunited with lost ones who have gone before us, who have given their lives to Jesus, and we will be with the Lord forever. And that's a very long time. Now let's take a look here at Luke 24 in verse one. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now, if you remember from our time last time together, if you remember, the Sabbath was coming. It was the preparation day for the Sabbath. So they would have been violating the Old Testament law, Exodus chapter 20, In Exodus chapter 20, if we were to look at Exodus 20 in verse 8, that's where we read about the Sabbath, that there's not to be any work done on the Sabbath. The Saturday, the seventh day of the week, was a day of rest and keeping with, remember, we're created in the image of God. God wants us to be like him. So on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work, be like him, and take a day of rest. And by the way, there's a lot of buzz going around these days that says, Jesus never judged. Who are we to judge? Listen, the whole Bible is a book about our behavior changing to conform to the behavior of Jesus Christ. It's all about character, otherwise you're going to be a character. It's all about character transformation. It's all about your lifestyle, my lifestyle actually changing. And that means that our lifestyles must by nature be judged by the truth of God's word, by the truth of the character of Jesus Christ. And so this is why keeping a day of rest during the course of your week is in keeping with you and with me being created in the image of God. It's a reminder for us to remember you are the highest of all God's creation, the pinnacle of God's creation, which should not, if rightly understood, cause us to rise with arrogance, but it should cause us to humble ourselves with humility. So there are many instances throughout the Bible where God's ways are not our ways. Our ways are not God's ways. The Bible is, in fact, judging us. The Bible is, in fact, a book on 
character transformation, how our lifestyles should change so that they reflect the glory of God, the character of God, and then as a byproduct, wherever you go, you bring Jesus with you. You may not be able to get somebody to walk into the doors of a church, but you can bring the church to wherever they are. That's the point. So the next time somebody tells you Jesus didn't judge, who are you to judge? You say, well, I'm not anybody to judge, but I am somebody who's trying to follow the character of Jesus. And therefore, my thoughts are changing, my words are changing, the attitudes of my heart are changing. My lifestyle is changing and yours will change too if you understand that God does indeed judge us through this book, the Bible, and does indeed want our behavior to change as the overflow of a renewed new heart. That is what it is all about. And I'll take it even one step further. If you really want to embrace this lie that's percolating and circulating today that Jesus didn't judge, could you please explain to me the reason for the cross? If you're okay and I'm okay and we're all okay, then could you please explain to me what this means? That the Son of Man was rejected and flogged and beaten and spat upon and nailed to a cross? If everybody's okay and God didn't have a problem with our behavior, if God didn't have a problem with our sin, if God didn't have a problem with our lifestyles, on the cross, justice and mercy kissed. In a perfect convergence, in one fell swoop, what cost you nothing, cost Jesus everything. God simultaneously dealt with sin, judging your sin and mine, and dealt with the sin problem in ways that you and I could never have dealt with it. Yes, Jesus did judge Yes, God does care about our behavior. And the Bible is God's book for character change. You will become like the God you intentionally determine to follow. You will become like the God you intentionally determine to follow. Luke chapter 24 and verse 1, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared after they rested on the Sabbath, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Luke is one of the four gospel writers. Only Luke refers to the body of Jesus. And when we get to the book of Acts, this is maybe a nodding toward the book of Acts. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. He's the one that says they saw the Lord bodily go up into the clouds. There are the clouds again. They saw the Son of Man going up into the clouds. And then the writer of the book of Acts, Luke says, why are you so perplexed this same Jesus is going to come back in the clouds? 
So a casual reading of the scriptures is never going to lead you to deep truths about God. A real disciple, a real Christ follower follows God by digging deeply into the word of God. I am so excited right now. I just want to stop and release us all to read the Bible and put it into action. Does anybody else feel that way or is it just me? Let's zero in here on verse one, the first day of the week. This is why we meet on Sunday. This is why Christ followers meet on Sunday. Look with me at Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse seven, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Kind of like the way I preach, right? The first day of the week. Something had happened among the Christ followers where the first day of the week became a highlight of the week. Because the greatest event in all of history occurred on the first day of the week. And understanding that great event sets the tone for every other day in the course of our weeks. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's why the believers are meeting on the first day of the week, Sunday. Because it was on that day that the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the scriptures, the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies in the New Testament were fulfilled. And Jesus, as dead as dead can be, literally was resurrected from the dead. That is the whole point. You can't make this stuff up. It's unbelievable, but because it's true, you should believe. That's the whole point. We know that it's unbelievable. We know that. For Pete's sake, make it a little bit more believable. This stuff is true, and that's the whole point. And because it's true, you can put that in your pipe and smoke it especially if you live in the state of Washington or in Colorado, where you could put whatever you want to in your pipe and smoke it and come up with all kinds of delusions because of what's in your pipe that you're smoking. But here, this is not delusion. This is truth. It's unbelievable because Jesus is believable. Look with me also at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, that would be Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Here's a principle of planned giving as an act of worship. As the believers were gathering together on the first day of the week to commemorate the miracle of miracles that actually changed their calendar and how they were worshiping and celebrating, that's when they were to worship God through planned giving by giving in accordance with how God had given them financial material resources. 
And listen, this is a practical aspect of how ministry gets done. It gets done through paper and electronic transactions that through your worshiping God by giving to him what he deserves, people can then receive that money and convert it to ministry downtown, to bringing on somebody for employment, and then that person is employed, and as a result, they get to eat food, which is kind of good once in a while, get to have a roof over their head, which is also kind of good for a while. So we need to take this understanding of worship, which is usually very limited to singing songs and playing an instrument, and we need to expand it to understanding that every area of life is to be an act of worship. And one of the fundamental, most practical ways that we worship God is by giving back to him in response to what he has given to us. By taking our money and laying it at his feet so that the kingdom of God, the only kingdom that will endure forever, the only kingdom that will endure forever, many kingdoms being built today, only one will endure forever. We give our money to Jesus and lay it at his feet so that the only kingdom that will endure forever will be advanced. And I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that. I've robbed God repeatedly in my past. I'm a recovering robber. I'm a recovering thief. And if you're honest with yourself, you are too. Here it is in the scriptures. This is where planned, premeditated acts of worship through financial giving is laid out with absolute clarity. And it's all because of the first day of the week. It's all because of what happened on the first day of the week, the greatest event in all of history. Now look with me at Luke chapter 24, verse four. While they were perplexed, right? The women were perplexed about this. The body of Jesus is gone. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, this is significant. Luke says there were two men who stood beside them in dazzling apparel. But when we get to the gospel of Mark, Mark says there was one. There was one, and he looked like a young man wearing a white robe. That's what he looked like. And so some people have speculated that this is just one example of many examples that we could find in the gospel accounts. Which of these accounts is correct? Which of these is right? And I'm going to suggest that they're all right. They're all right. And this morning, for your reading pleasure, I got up early this morning and I wrote a blog about this this morning that does not mean that you can check out now and not pay attention. You'll catch it later. You can go to godfactor.com to the blog. Super easy. You go to godfactor.com, go to the blog, and you'll find it right there. It's the first thing you're going to read. And if you're reading this at a later time, maybe by podcast or radio, maybe you're listening to this again, you just search for contradictions in the Gospels. Contradictions in the Gospels, and you'll find this, okay? So here I want to read this for us to help us understand and appreciate and explain what may appear to be at first glance or even at second glance with a casual reading. 
alleged contradictions in the Bible. Many people have tried and continue to try to discredit the gospel accounts because they differ in detail. Some suggest that the differences are contradictions, quote unquote, that demonstrate the Bible to be at best an inaccurate account of the events surrounding the life of Jesus Christ, or at worst, an outright attempt at deception and lies. How many of us have heard one or both of those explanations? Come on, be honest. How many of us have actually struggled with that from time to time? Well, I look at biblical passages and I wonder, how do we make sense of that? Didn't the other writer say something a little bit different? Didn't the other writer say something a little bit contradictory? How can this all be God's word together? How do we reconcile these alleged contradictions? And that's what led me to write this blog. Here are a few guidelines for biblical interpretation. Here are two simple but vital guidelines when reading and interpreting Bible stories, especially in regard to the eyewitness accounts recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Number one, an incomplete account is not a false account. An incomplete account is not a false account. A story is not false or inaccurate simply because it does not contain every single detail. If that were the case, you wouldn't be able to read anything in all of history because no historian is ever exhaustive providing all the details. No single historian is exhaustive in providing all of the details. Think about the writing of World War II or World War I or the Korean War or any type of history. No historian is exhaustive providing all of the details. It's only as we read account after account of historians that we put all the pieces together and we get a fuller picture. The same is true when it comes to the Gospels. A story is not false or inaccurate simply because it does not contain every single detail. Every historian writes from a particular perspective with certain emphases. Likewise, this is the case in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Number two, differing accounts are not false accounts. Super important to understand. The first thing in interpretation is that an incomplete account is not necessarily a false account. Secondarily, a differing account is not necessarily a false account. For example, Matthew's account of the gospel, the resurrection, says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came up and took hold of his feet, Jesus' feet, and worshiped him. While in John 20, verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me. So which is it? Which is it? It's both. Consider that upon holding Jesus' feet and worshiping him, Mary was then told by Jesus to stop. More importantly, notice, listen to this, notice that in neither account were the women told it was improper to worship Jesus. See, be careful you don't strain at gnats and swallow camels in the biblical account because through what you might think to be our discrepancies or through what you might think are contradictions, don't miss this truth that Jesus is okay with being worshiped. The angels are okay with Jesus being worshiped. In fact, when you come to the book of Revelation, you see every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, people from all around the world who have been redeemed, who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, worshiping Jesus on the throne. Jesus is the epicenter of true, authentic worship. 
If you pay attention, you'll find that there are many differences in the gospel accounts, such as John mentioning two angels in the resurrection story, while Matthew mentions only one. Matthew did not say there were two angels. He merely records that there was an angel who spoke. If there were two angels, there was definitely one. That's simple math, right? And one of them was the spokesperson with both angels appearing as witnesses. The differing gospel details, they actually make them complementary, well-rounded, emphasizing certain aspects that help us understand what took place as a matter of real history. Be careful that you don't doubt an account merely because it's different from another. Postpone final conclusions until you've done thorough research from multiple perspectives. Read the whole Bible. The most important thing to grasp is that the differing accounts present no contradiction or differences whatsoever in terms of doctrine and theology or the identity of Jesus or how we should and must live for Jesus as a result. Super important to understand. We don't find doctrinal differences, theological differences, identity differences about Jesus or how we should live as a result. The conclusion Rather than discrediting the authenticity and accuracy of the Bible, the different views of the resurrection and post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus presented by the writers of the Gospels demonstrate the legitimacy of there being multiple credible eyewitnesses to the events. These aren't made up stories at all. The ways in which they're told demonstrate the fact that there were real eyewitnesses telling what actually transpired. The different nuances and emphases in the gospel accounts don't discredit the Bible. They actually help support the conclusion that it is reliable. When different people witness an unexpected dramatic event, we would expect them, listen, we would expect them to tell their stories in disorganized, different ways. Seeing a resurrected Jesus after being beaten and crucified so violently certainly qualifies as an unexpected dramatic event. It's the shock of the unexpected that led to the different ways of telling the same story. As even then, the people were still processing what they had witnessed. There would be no need for different writers if all of them told the same story with the exact same details. The differing details provide credibility rather than diminish it. If the gospel writers were attempting to deceive readers, we would have most probably seen one uniform, sanitized story. If that were to have happened, we would most likely see the same people who insist that the Bible is only a book of fairy tales, a conspiracy, suggest that the uniform story were obviously crafted to mislead. It's been said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. A skeptic, wanting to discount the identity of Jesus and the events surrounding his life and ministry will find any reason to do so no matter how the story might be told. By the time we carefully compare all four gospel accounts, we see that they come together exceptionally well and that they strongly agree on the most important fact in all of history. Jesus Christ was crucified, died, was buried, and on the third day, exactly as he predicted, he rose from the dead. The reason why we celebrate together 
on Sunday is because Jesus Christ was crucified. He died. He was buried. And despite physiology and biology, supernaturally, he was raised from the dead. And that is God's definitive statement about the sacrifice of Jesus being sufficient and satisfactory to him to take away not just one, not just two, not just three, not just some of your sin and mine, but every last one. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.